I'm Cindy Zhang, and this is Tell Me Muse, a podcast where I speak to recent McGill graduates to figure out what exactly is classics. Today, I'm speaking with Keisuke Nakajima, or Jima. His research lies mainly in the field of classical reception, which is an area of classics that I hadn't even heard of as a second-year undergraduate student. I think I was in my third year before I realized that there was this whole other realm of research that was dedicated to looking at how classical myths and figures have influenced and shaped later works of art, literature, theatrical production, you name it. But anyways, I'll let Jima give you the full explanation in a little bit. In this episode, we talk about the prominent role that Plato holds in modern media, and how the way that most of us who have interacted with these references to Plato may have been misled to a certain degree about how inclusive he actually was. We also talk about how Ovid, the Roman poet who was composing his epic work The Metamorphoses in the early 1st century CE, might actually present himself as a better candidate for a writer that acknowledges true diversity and inclusion in the ancient world. Anyways, there's a lot of info here, and I think it's all pretty relevant. So allow me to introduce Jima. Just as an introduction, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, your background, and then maybe how you got into classics? Okay, so my name is Jima. I recently graduated from McGill with honors in classics and minoring in Italian study. I got into classics at a quite young age, actually. My parents used to take me to museum exhibitions. And I fell in love with Greek and Roman sculptures and arts as like a closeted queer kid in Japan. And that's how I first got into classics. Did you get any exposure to classics in high school or was it just in university? Yeah, I was really fortunate that my high school offered a Latin class. And also in Ontario, there's a thing called Annual Ontario High School Classics Conference or something. I don't know the full name. So every year you gather with other high school students at a university and we have three days conference where you do skit or like academic competition and athletic as well. So those things really like just made me realize more that like classics as a real discipline, not like the thing that I was just interested in. And then when you came into McGill first year, did you know that classics was what you wanted to do? <laughs> That's funny. So it's a like complicated story because I was a science student in my first year, but like I knew that that was what I wanted to do. But when I was applying to universities in grade 12, I thought I wanted to get married to a doctor. So I was like, I'm going to go into life science to find somebody that can be my future partner. And then realized that that's not how life works. So during the summer before entering McGill, I had a conversation with my parents. And I'm like, is it good if I just switch out of science? And they were like, we never told you to do science. And so I was like, Okay, that's why I, like, even my first year, 
while I was officially enrolled as a science student, I took Latin, I took Greek, and a few introductory classics classes. So yeah, the answer to that question, if I knew I wanted to do classics is yes, but it doesn't, it might not look like that on the paper. So now let's turn to talk about your paper. This is the accumulation of over two years of research, and uh, you're talking about classical reception and about gender and identity, sexual orientation in the ancient world. Can you provide us with a brief introduction about what is classical reception? So, okay, classical reception is studying how the people engaged with the classical materials. People who study classical reception, for example, look at Dante's Inferno. Actually, I don't know why I said only the Inferno, the entire Divine Comedy and be like, okay, so Dante is clearly looking at Ovid's work and Virgil's work, and like, how does he use that for his purpose? How does he engage with it? All the Renaissance writers like Petrarca, and like, there are plenty of examples through history and also in a modern example that I am more interested in, like Disney Hercules. That is a practice of classical reception. So studying of that kind of engagement, I would say, is the field of classical reception. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So does it just include co-opting stories and characters from the ancient world into more modern pieces of literature and art? As opposed to? As opposed to, like, themes? Oh, no, definitely there's a broader, like, concept. I'm pretty sure I know there are people who study, like, Roman Greek culture more broadly like architecture and stuff for example and go through or like sculptures so there are a lot of stuff that it goes beyond just literature and fine arts i just wanted to add i feel like there are a lot of people who study classical reception without noticing it because like for example if you study classics and if you find some like connection to the modern world that you live in for example that already is like analyzing classical reception in a way. So it's like really broad, I would say. Is reception something that has only started developing in quote unquote the modern world? Or was reception taking place already in the ancient world? It happened very clearly in the ancient world because like if you look at the Argonautica, for example. That's Apollonius's work about Jason and the Golden Fleece? Yes, that is a clear rework of the Homeric epic and also the Attic tragedies. That is a practice of reception. And the same goes for the Roman writers who clearly knew Greek works before and take that for creating their own. Like Virgil definitely looked at everything he had on his table and be like, okay, knowing those I'm writing the Aeneid. So that right. is a practice of classical reception. So Virgil's act of taking characters that Homer mentioned in the Trojan War, specifically Aeneas, and turning it into his own narrative centered on Rome, that's an act of reception because it's taking characters from a pre-existing Greek tradition and then morphing it. Yeah, I think so. Or like, not even like, you don't have to be as specific as characters, but it's like the theme or like the stories and even like cultures, you know, just learning and reworking. So yeah, 
that is a practice of perception. And you look specifically at, I guess, works of that talk about love and about gender identity in the ancient world. There's Plato, and you also mentioned Ovid. So let's start with Plato. How is Plato's conceptualization of love and queer love different from maybe modern conceptions? And how is it used in modern media? So yeah, I have an issue with Plato because, you know, people look up, look back at Plato's Symposium of Phaedrus and be like, oh, this is amazing because it talks about quotation mark queer love between two men. And that's like, wow, it's amazing that they are praising those loves that are like usually considered like unusual. That's also in quotation mark. You cannot see it because this is audio, but. But then if you look back at Plato's time, there's nothing in classical Athens when Plato's writing, there's nothing queer about love between two men. That is very socially accepted. And it was a praised in the society already in a way. It was an institution. So I think there's a problem where the modern queer media look back to Plato and use it in our like our modern media because Plato's work did not promote any kind of diversity or inclusion. It was actually quite the opposite. Basically, my reading of Plato's homoeroticism is that they are like, we don't need women in our lives because two men can secure continuity. So it's actually an exclusion that I read in Plato of women and not an inclusion of queer love. So seeing that in our modern media and seeing people praise it, to me, is slightly disturbing. So let's break that argument down a little bit. It's quite complex. So a lot of the modern references to Plato come from, as you say, the symposium and one particular quote from it, which talks about how when Zeus first made humans, they were like round balls with two heads, two arms, and two legs. Some of them were male-male some of them were male-female, and then some of them were female-female. And this was featured very recently in a music video by Lil Nas, and that's what generated a lot of attention around it, I think. I was actually just watching the new Christmas movie, and it opened with this exact story, this exact myth about like the round humans and the origin of romance and homoeroticism. So could you quickly explain the myth that's taking place here? And then what in the context of Plato's Symposium tells us that this story is not meant to be interpreted as a story of inclusion? Okay, I think you explained the story quite well. So the issue that I have with the story first is that Plato put the speech into the mouth of Aristophanes, who is a comic writer, This is not to say that you never were meant to take the comedy itself seriously. Because like, if you look at Aristophanes' work, like the actual comedy, there's a lot to say about it. And there's like serious issues being discussed. But then it's not the case in the symposium. In symposium, it's Plato putting this in Aristophanes' speech. And because from the other speeches, it's very clear that the occupation of the speaker determines the characteristic of the speech. There's a reason why this story, by the way, this story does not occur in anywhere else in the Greek literature. So it's quite possible that Plato just made up this story 
which I don't see any seriousness in the story. I think it's very, I think it's clear that it's not meant to be taken seriously because of how ridiculous the story is. And Plato chose Aristophanes specifically as a speaker. And also Plato does not like Aristophanes, as you can see from Apology. They have beefs. So that is why I'm like, I don't know why you guys are celebrating this. Cause like, if you think that is like a good story of like equality or whatever, of like different kinds of love, Plato is taking that as a joke. Another thing is that if you read that story, they're like, yeah, they mentioned like three kinds of round people. And they're like, oh, if you're from the female sphere, you'll be female homoerotics. Or like if it's from a male sphere, you're gonna be a man who's interested in men. And if you're from the androgynous one, you're gonna be a heterosexual. If you read that part very specifically, people says like, oh, that's great. They are like Aristophanes talking about equal naturality of those different kinds of love. But then Aristophanes talks so long for the male sphere and he barely mentions anything else. So like even from the focus of that story, like, I don't think they even cared to tell the story of other loves. It was still about praising the love between two men over anything else. So I don't particularly see any like greatness in that story that some creators see. Could it be used as an emblem more to express love between male and male and just take that in itself as some way to promote diversity? I just don't, I think we are past that, you know, like people did that in like 19th century, like Oscar Wilde, for example, looked at like Symposium and other Plato's work to make sense of his affection towards other men. But that was like over hundred years ago. Now the queer community has become so diverse. There's so many more different kinds of people that the androcentrism should not be excused anymore. Like, I don't think praising homoerotic relationship between two men is no longer, like, that should not be the center of celebration at, like, this particular moment in history. Like, we cannot discredit that from happening before. We cannot discredit Plato for helping Oscar Wilde, but, like, it's 21st century. We need to, like, look beyond that and find something that is, like, actually more inclusive and not, like, men, men, and men only. You also speak to the fact that there is a deeper underlying problem with using Plato in particular for modern receptions of inclusion and diversity, and that's because in a lot of his works, there is this theme of misogyny. Can you elaborate on that? Okay, so I think we kind of have to shift our brain a little to Hesiod. Hesiod was a didactic poet who wrote, I believe, a little bit before Homer, but that is a hot debate that I do not wish to be involved in. So he wrote two poems. Actually, he wrote more than that, but we know The Works and Days and Theogony more. And in Works and Days, Hesiod present women as like a bane to human and in it it talks about how he hates women and women is like all bad but like you need women to secure continuity so like basically he sees idea is like 
woman is like necessary evil. Like you have to have a woman, although it's nothing right. Like there's nothing good about women, but for the continuity purpose, you need a woman. Continuity um, as in having children. Exactly. That's like the primary way of like securing continuity at that time in their mind. And that kind of like anxiety about having women in your life is quite evident in the classical Athenian mind, as you can see from a lot of the Attic tragedies that centers around wives' bad behaviors, like Medea or Clytemnestra. It's quite clear that Hesiod's idea existed in the classical period as well, although they're from different time period. But then if you read Plato's Symposium and Phaedrus, Plato seemed to give a solution almost to the problem that he's here posed, which is that you no longer need women for securing your continuity. That connection to me was clear when I read Socrates' speech in the Symposium because he uses so much imagery that is related to childbirth and stuff. And I was talking about if you are like physically pregnant, you need a woman. But if you are like mentally pregnant or whatever, like you actually don't need a woman to give birth to your child. He gives that example of Homer giving birth to his poetry. And those children are better than mortal children that you give birth with a woman. And then in Phaedrus, he seemed to suggest that the way to reach that kind of divine offspring is through same-sex relationships between men, like the homoeroticism between the two. So if you take those all together, it to me sounds like those two works are meant to suggest a way of life where you don't have to do anything with a woman. So there is this kind of abstraction happening here where physical children who are meant to continue your legacy are being replaced by non-tangible stories and myths about you. So I think the one that comes to mind easiest for Homer is like his poetry, like the Iliad and the Odyssey. So these are tales that are being repeated and are being used uh, in works of reception by other authors after him. And because of that, Homer, let's just say he didn't have children, even if he didn't have children, he lives on through his works, which are his quote unquote, immortal children. So you're saying that Plato is arguing something similar? Yes, Plato's work, Phaedrus and Symposium when read together to me, sounds like you think you need a woman to secure your continuity, although woman is evil. However, you can replace that heterosexual love with just love between men to have a child that is even better. So basically he's just like inventing a way to exclude women completely from a man's life. So my question is, who was his target audience? Because this is not very practical advice. You're in 4th century BCE Athens. You suddenly decide, you know, you're, you're a citizen male. You have a male lover. You suddenly decide you don't want children and you're going to make this immortal child through poetry or through some kind of work that is birthed from this love between you. If everybody went around and did that, nobody would have children. So Plato must have had a target demographic. Could you maybe speak to who that might be? 
the thing is, like, uh, if you cannot tell from Fortnite, like, I do not like Play-Doh's. I cannot really talk specifically to, like, the specific of who Play-Doh is writing for. But definitely, he's like, there are certain people that are probably thinking similar way as Play-Doh of that hatred towards women. I want to say fear, actually. Fear towards women. That was fairly common in the Greek uh, man's mind. And I think Plato is trying to kind of poke that and be like, you don't have to fear them because you never need them anyways. Was this fear stemming from fear of infidelity or just as woman as an unknown, mad kind of creature that you have to deal with? I would say the latter because that's how it is presented in Hesiod. Hesiod is like, men were doing just fine before women was created. And that is already a different species. Like, <laughs> that is an alien being just suddenly being created after men. And I believe that, probably not as extreme, but if you look at the medical treaties, for example, some people seem to fail to acknowledge that men and women have similar bodies. They want it at least to present women as different kind from men. And that to me sounds like an um, indication of fear or will to exclude women. Okay, so we have Plato here recommending to a lot of probably elite men that one should keep a wife just so that you have a literal human being, like a child, to secure your continuity, but one should put all of your effort or the majority of your effort into cultivating a love between another male and yourself so that you can achieve a better, purer form of love that can serve as a alternative form of legacy. I mean, I don't know if Plato is promoting the heterosexual love at all. It seems to be like his little bit extreme of like, you don't need that. But again, he's a philosopher. I don't think he is expecting everything to take things too literal. Mm -hmm. I guess my point is that Plato's starting point is fairly clear and that does not correspond with what our modern queer community aim to do, which is the inclusion diversity, and that is the problem. You mentioned that Plato sidelines, even in Aristophanes' speech about there originally being beings with two heads of women, you mentioned that Plato sort of sidelines that and doesn't address female-female love, but you recommend Ovid instead. Can you tell us who Ovid is and why he's a better candidate for representation of diversity and inclusion in both reception and in the ancient world? So when I read Ovid's Metamorphosis, I see it and he's doing something different from his contemporaries and his predecessors. Like women used to be just like tools in epic poetry and Ovid decides to center 15 books of epic around the voices of girls and women and some of the stories that includes love between women. So I read it and I'm like, There's, to me that is more hopeful than any other authors up to his time. It's like, there's a clear difference from 
other authors and Ovid about like in their attitude towards women. A lot of the other authors like Virgil or Plato, the attitude towards women is whether indifferent or negative. But I don't get that from Ovid. He does not ignore women's existence and he gives voice to them. And that's what the queer community should be aiming these days is to tell people who are usually ignored, be like you mother too, you get to speak too and you deserve to be heard and recognized. And I think all this epic did that or at least tried to. Yeah, that is why I'm into all this metamorphosis a lot. And I do want to point out here that Ovid is writing almost four centuries after Plato, and he is a Latin author. So there we have a shift in both temporal and geographic context. We're now talking about Rome under the new Augustan monarchy in Rome. Uh, but this theme of hatred and misogyny towards women is still persisting into Roman times. They got a lot of it from the Greeks. Cicero. Procaelio is Cicero's speech to defend his dear friend Caelius. And it suddenly becomes just a hatred speech towards his, I think it's his wife. And like, that alone is bad. Like, you don't have to put someone down like that to protect somebody. So that's like an example. And maybe in a more literally context, if you read Virgil's Aeneid, you see the story of Dido in book four, but like she was not given that much of voice or agency. So that kind of says the treatment of women in the literary world and also in the real world as well. So yeah, those are the examples that I can think of, of like how you can see that it's still there. I think it's being commonly acknowledged that Roman women were like having slightly better life than the Greek women. People say that very often, and I think there's some truth to it. But again, that's like a like a tiny difference. Women still ignored. So how does Ovid change this? Can you give us an example or two of how he frames women's sufferings and forefronts it even? So I guess the one example that I can think of from the Metamorphosis is the story of the sisters Procne and Philomela. So Procne gets married to this man who is a devil and he falls in love with Procne's sister Philomela and he rapes Philomela and cut her tongue out so that she will not be able to talk about it. But then Philomela is able to make herself heard through weaving. She weaved the story of what happened to her and sent it to the sister and the sister avenged the... Do you avenge the person who did something wrong mm -hmm. or avenge the husband? So that's No, she story. avenged her sister. She avenged Philomela. Okay, okay, yeah. I was confused. I was like, which one's being avenged? But anyways, so in this one, in figurative sense, you see a woman being silenced, but then recover her voice. And same happens in book one, when he talks about Ayo. And like when Ovid writes those stories, he focuses a lot on losing voices and like being unable to speak. So to me, what like Ovid reads as like someone who 
direct the reader's attention to those women being silenced by men. And men make all those efforts to make them stay quiet, but then the women just, women gains that power back. And those are the stories that gives me the idea that Ovid has a, something to say about the society almost, you know? Like that can be seen as like a broader statement to the Roman world where women are continue to be silenced and maybe all of it is making a progressive statement about that. Like he's pointing out the problem. I think there's definitely a lot of evidence in that, especially in the metamorphoses. And you also mentioned in the paper that he expands the scope of the diverse people he includes to talk even about homosexual love between women. So can you give us a rundown of the story of Iphis and Ianthe and how that to you is like the epitome of inclusion and diversity and how we should be interpreting it? Yeah, I really like that story because it's like, it doesn't see any like a parallels in other authors. So basically what happened is that there's this man who is like really poor and he had a wife, Teletusa. But he tells Teletusa that if the child was a girl, she has to be murdered because they cannot afford to raise a girl. Then Teletusa was sad. They were both sad, actually. But then Teletusa in dream had this vision where the goddess Isis tells her that regardless of the child's sex, she needs to raise the child. And so when the girl Iphis was born, Teletusa follows the gods' advice and do not kill the child and raised her disguised as a boy. But then the problem comes when Iphis is in the marriage age. She grew up as a boy, so obviously the marriage partner was a girl, Yante. And Iphis clearly loves her. So that's something that she know is that Iphis has affection towards Yante. So that is already an example of like a love that no one talks about. So there's some debates about if this is actual identity as like a non-binary person. So I'm not gonna say like, um, I'm not gonna necessarily say it's a homoerotic relationship between two women because that kind of in a way like lowers the value of the story a little, but let's say like a biological woman being in love with another biological woman is not being told in, the classical literature very often. So anyway, so there's clearly that affection, but if this is very sad because that was not allowed in the culture for two women to get married. So on the wedding night, Teletusa prays to the goddess Isis and like, what the fuck are we supposed to do? And the goddess made the marriage possible. Because some people say sex change, but like, I don't believe in that. So. <laughs> Is there any evidence of sex change? Because there is one interpretation of the story is that Isis turns Iphis biologically into a male. So at the end of the day, it's still a heterosexual marriage. But is there any evidence in the text of that happening? So when Ovid describes the transformation, there are a few transformations in metamorphosis that deals with like sex transformation. No other stories of it tell the transformation in such a detail as he does with Iphis. 
But then Ovid mentioned something like hair length, which is weird because like, first of all, what if Iphis was raised as a boy, their hair should be at the same length as the boy anyways. But then her skin gets darker, her voice gets lower, like things like that, that those all the performative things that you can change on your own if you try to. But he doesn't mention anything about the genital change. So to Roman audience, that would be the only thing you have to mention. That's going to be the clearest sign ever with like the genital change, you know. But Ovid actively ignores that. Ovid actively take out the most clear sign of transformation out of his detailed transformation. So while it might be too much to say that the biological section did not happen, it's worth mentioning that Ovid think it's not important to mention. And after the transformation, Iphis is described as a puer twice, which means a boy. But that is another interesting incident because when you are talking about marriage, puer do not get married to a woman because puer in Roman mind is not an active partner in the love. That is still a passive partner. So when Iphis is described as puer, that doesn't really solve the problem that they originally had, is that they didn't follow that heteronormative love. So Ovid by no means is giving like a straight cut of like, oh, if it became a weird, like the actual, like a man, and like they got married as like a proper, like a proper Roman couple. They're not from Rome, so they're not Roman, but you get the idea. So like Ovid is purposefully doing this. He could have made that conclusion so much clearer. So some scholars says that this story is like a denunciation of homosexuality because it shows like the superiority of heterosexual love over homosexual love because of the ending. But then I don't see that in Ovid at all because Ovid is making that conclusion so unclear. And if that's the purpose, Ovid could, like, he's a good writer. He wouldn't know what to do if that's the purpose. But that's not what it is, so. Does this myth of Iphis and Iante show up in other authors so that we could cross-reference? No, this is only in Ovid. So it's also quite possible that Ovid came up with this story on his own because it's so different from what the Roman audience around him is, is expecting and what other Roman authors are writing. Yeah, and if he made this up, that alone said something, you know, like he actively made this story of a clearly queer love, regardless of if it's like lesbianism or transgenderism, this is a queer love story. And this is a queer love story with a happy ending. You do not see that in elsewhere. And if he made that up, if he made this story, I see some positive motivation. And if he is reworking the stories that's already been told and telling it the way that he does, that to me sounds like both ways. I feel like the story can be taken as a progressive statement. So I'm just curious now, you know, Ovid was also a famous author. He was very influential in the ancient world and throughout the Renaissance too. Why is it that Plato still surpasses him when it comes to modern reception of queer love? It's because of how 
androcentric the queer community has been, I think, or the world has been almost. You know. So you think this was an active choice on the part of the queer community developing, you know, uh, in the 18th, 19th century as well? Because the thing is, like, there are queer women who've been looking at of it before, but men have so much more voice. Like the 19th century English writers who look at Plato and use that for their own works. Those works got so much more popular because men were able to get themselves hard more than the women. And that problem still exists, I think, in the queer community. Like even just look at like a queer media, there are so many stories about male homoeroticism, but then there's so little about love between women or like transgenderism represented in the queer media. Like if you look at like a famous LGBTQ movies that people know about, like Call Me By Your Name, Maurice, Brokeback Mountain, or Love, Simon, how many like male, male loves movies that you can name and how many same-sex female homoeroticism or like lesbianism or transgenderism representation in our media that becomes famous. Like there are not that many. That is a problem and I don't think many people realize that. And that is why Plato is still accepted. This is why Plato is still have such a privileged position in our queer media. And my goal is to point out that problem. And you're slowly rehabilitating Ovid even into our community here at McGill through the classics play, which you are co-directing this year. Can you tell us about the play and which is focused on Ovid's metamorphoses? What are some of the stories that you're including in it? And then maybe your rationale for why you chose those stories out of the 15 books. So first of all, Terry is my co-director. We both liked Ovid and we wanted to make this about love. So that's the first thing. So when we are picking stories, we are for sure picking love stories. If it's on the end, it's definitely the first one that came to our mind. And it was like, there's no way we're not including this. And I really like the story of Pyramus and Thisbe in book four. That is a story that Romeo and Juliet is based on. And we didn't want to include any like rape stories. So so that narrows your selection by a lot. A lot. Yeah, Procne and Philomela, for example, although there's a lot to be said about that story, I think we wanted to reserve that for more scholarly debate and not in our production because we just wanted to make ours wholesome. We did a um, gender-blind cast, so no characters have genders. Yeah, it's going to be really good. I'm excited to watch it in February. Just to wrap up our conversation here, I want to turn to talk about some of your future plans. Where do you okay. see yourself going with this research? And where does Classic stand in your future plans? Yeah, so I would definitely like to continue on Ovid. I'm not a kind of person to be like, I believe Ovid is a progressive writer and I will go find the evidence. I want to read Ovid, like that's things that I have not read yet, which is his earlier stuff and be like, what does he say in his earlier stuff? Did he change throughout his career? Like those stuff, I want to know Ovid more, even though that not necessarily support the claim that I'm making right now. 
but I just want to know a bit more. So definitely yes. But I don't know. I just like I'm very into Greek and Latin literature in general. So I am very open to the idea of going where they take me. But yes, of it is important for sure. And I guess for my career, I'm very into the idea of teaching Latin or Greek or like classics in general. I want to do something creative because I'm into classical reception. I don't want to only like examine what other people have done. I kind of want to participate in that practice on my own and create some media that is more inclusive than just putting Plato's quote in the music video. Because the Roman Greek culture meant so much to me growing up as like a realization of who I am as a human, my goal is to maybe make like a media, whether novel or movie or play or whatever, that can do the same to the generations to follow. And classics is so great for that because it's just adaptable to many mediums and you have, you know, quite a bit of material to work with if you take into consideration both Greek and Roman authors. And our finishing question here is a big one, but it's an important one. What does classics mean to you? Yeah, that is a big question. Again, as I said, it's a big part of me because it played such a significant role in like self-realization. So it's definitely a part of me right now. And I'm very thankful for the field of classics because they provided me with a place that I feel welcome and secure. So I know it's like a home, you know? Classics is somewhere that like I come back to when I like don't know what the hell is happening in my life. I am such an introvert. So when I have to interact with other people, I get so exhausted. But then I come home and just sit and read like Herodotus was, I started reading Salas today and I feel so like calm and relaxed. So that's what classics is to me right now. I really hope that this is providing the home to other people like it did to me. been listening to my conversation with Keisuke Nakajima on classical reception and why Ovid should replace the role that Plato holds in our modern media when we talk about diversity and inclusion in the ancient world. The questions for this episode were put together with the help of Emma Gauthier, Zoe Luchet, and Maddie Laxer. Audio editing was also completed by Emma Gauthier. Tune in next month for my conversation with Sarah Raha Jason. We'll be talking about Latin philology, which is the study of ancient languages, and Lucretius's poem, De Rerum Natura. Until next time, music for the podcast is produced by Matthew Hawkins. Cover art was designed by Taya Kendall. The podcast is produced with the help of grants from the Arts Undergraduate Society and the Financial Management Committee at McGill University. I'm Cindy Zhang, and thank you for listening to Tell Me Muse.